Hello and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast from WGBH News about media and politics from Beacon Hill and this week from The Beltway. I'm David Bernstein at a studio in the NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C. And here with me are two people behind the bylines you may recognize. Donovan Slack is a USA Today Washington Bureau reporter. She used to be a reporter at the Boston Globe. How are you, Donovan? I'm great, David. Thank you. When were you, what were your years in Boston? How long were you actually in Boston? I was at the Boston Globe from 2003 through 2012, and actually in Boston for eight of those years. And and at the tail end, you came down here to be there in their Washington Bureau. Yes, I was, I was, came down in 2010. And then... As I, if I recall correctly, Politico scooped you up as part of their ramp up for the 2012 election cycle. They did. I left the Globe to work there at Politico on their White House team to follow Obama during the reelection campaign. Because I remember that brought you up to Boston, as a matter of fact. I, I saw you up there uh, when, when Obama spoke uh, at Symphony Hall, I believe. That's right. Yes, I was traveling with him then. Uh-huh. We also have current Boston Globey, uh, Matt Viser. He is a reporter in the Washington Bureau for the Globe. Hi, Matt. How you doing, David? And Matt, you are more recently down here. You've been with the Globe for how long? Um, eleven years. You, you have uh, no idea. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> am I still at the Globe? I yeah, uh, I moved up to Boston uh, in two thousand two, and I freelanced for a couple of years out in the suburbs. Oh, okay. Uh, and then sort of wound my way through the paper, uh, where Donovan and I shared a. Uh, office in City Hall in the bureau there. It's a tiny concrete box is what that was. <laughs> yeah. yeah. A, a tiny concrete box inside the large concrete box exactly. which is City Hall. Yeah. Um it you both started at the at the Globe more or less when I started at Boston Phoenix. I came there at around 2003. I I don't remember running into you Matt as much yeah. in in those early days as I used to run into Donovan. I, I don't know why that, that was just the particular beats that, you know, stories that I happen to be running around on. So right. but we used to run run around a lot. But so we are uh, uh, Bostonians all down here, uh, you two right in D.C., and uh, I'm in nearby Richmond. So so do you two, do you still feel like, I mean, are you Bostonians? Are you part of like an exile culture down here in, in D.C.? Or uh, is Boston no longer... You know, part of your consciousness. What, what's oh the... no, absolutely. It's, <laughs> it's funny here in the here in Washington. A lot of people talk to each other based on where they're from, and Matt and I see each other at events all the time. I still have a place in Boston, so I still feel like I'm a Bostonian. Although it's funny, this winter I'm really happy not to be a Bostonian. And is it is it true that like that there are a lot of Bostonians or people who at one time or another identified with Boston that you come across here in D.C., you know, both yeah. in the journalism groups, but also, you know, staffers and so on. Absolutely. I mean, and I, I did a story last year when the Red Sox came to the White House uh, for the World Series. That, that was with the, the, the that was the time of the famous David Ortiz it, selfie. It was the yeah. David Ortiz selfie. That's all uh, I remember from. The, <laughs> <laughs> but it was amazing how the city kind of collectively, I mean, it was a hot ticket uh, John Boehner's uh, communications director, Michael Steele, you know, probably has no other uh, reason to be excited about being next to President Obama, like going to the White House. But this, he, he was like, it was a hot ticket because he, he grew up near Boston and wanted to wanted to be there. So 
you know, you had, uh, you know, Susan Collins and, you know, all, all of these right, right. centers, everybody's trying to sort of jockey to get to get there. And so many people sort of have a tie I don't either during part if, of their if life. I you wrote or... this story or not, but didn't uh, Secretary Kerry, he had a lot of staff. And when he ran for president in 2004, a lot of Democratic staff, uh, obviously, to run a presidential campaign. And then those people all kind of fan out uh-huh, to uh-huh. various uh, agencies, whether it's with the administration or whether it's with other members of Congress that are Democrats. Like everywhere you go, it's like, oh, there's a former Kerry staffer. Well, and, and Ted former Kennedy, Kennedy the same yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just like uh, there's a tight network, uh, whether their connection has been through Kennedy or Kerry or they went to Harvard or they went to, you know, BU or you know there's a, there's a lot of ties to yeah. to either our congressional members or to colleges or universities or the sports teams or the sports right. teams. or they just like the Red Sox. Right. Well, there's also I I think that there's also more especially on the sports more anti-Boston sentiment among sort of the the other folks here even more so like New York doesn't really bother too much with the with that Boston hatred unless there's a direct rivalry over something but the the non-Bostonians in, in the DC in the Beltway seem to be complaining about the Patriots being back in the Super Bowl, complaining about the Red Sox, those kinds of things. Maybe yeah. it's because their teams always go nowhere, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's a jealousy <laughs> thing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Some of the listeners may also know we're probably too, doing too much of this uh, just chatter, but that's I'm more interested in the chatter than the than actual <laughs> topics. But but uh, Matt has become the coffee expert. Maven? What, what, I don't know what the right word would be. but, but you Well, might let have... me just it's, It came out of nowhere. Can I just one second before you go in? You know a backstory to this? Well, it's funny because you get these morning news alerts. And, and you know, as a, as a reporter here, you have to kind of, it's like drinking water from a fire hose. And, right. and you, there's these newsletters like, here's the stories to watch today. And sure enough, I opened it up one morning and they're like, don't miss this column by Matt Visor about coffee. <laughs> and I think I sent you an email. I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. It's the must read. Uh, you know, yeah. Oh, that, that may have been one I did about the White House and coffee and trying to sort of figure out what coffee is served at the White House. Right, uh, right, right. Which they were ultra secretive about. So the story was more about my own personal journey to find out the hard hitting question of. What coffee does the White House serve? Now, is that, where are you from originally? Uh, I grew up mostly in Tennessee and hmm. went to school in North Carolina at UNC. So pulling from my Tar Heels. Well, well, but it wasn't like you came from some coffee-growing region or something. Oh, no, no. I was, I was not born How did in this Brazil happen? or whatever. I, so I covered the 2012. I mean, I've always kind of been into coffee, but 2012 in particular, covering the presidential campaign, I was covering Mitt Romney and always in search of like a local coffee place that was not Starbucks. Uh, Starbucks was kind of comforting in its own way because you knew consistently what you were going to get. But I was more into finding a unique like, you know, trendy coffee shop. Back to our days in the concrete box in Boston City Hall. And I was like. I don't remember him drinking that much coffee. There weren't that many good uh, locations. I mean, there was a Starbucks uh, out there. There was a there was one in in uh, in Faneuil Hall. Or, uh, yeah. Quincy Market had had a coffee shop in it, and I can't remember. I what think it was, it was like a home roast. Yeah, home it was like a local local one at yeah. a Sudbury or something. So I I get those beans occasionally, but I've gotten more fanatical about it for sure. And then uh, I had pitched Brian McGrory a story about. Uh, Seoul, Korea is booming in coffee and Dunkin' Donuts is like that's their biggest international location. So 
I somehow convinced him to send me to to Korea to do a story <laughs> about Dunkin' Donuts in in Korea. So hence grew the coffee blog out of uh, out of yeah. my trip to Korea. Uh, well, I, I I like the coffee blog. I, I'm not complaining or anything. I just it's you know it's getting more complicated it's... now that like actual news is is happening. Uh, I, I right, say. right. Like it's it's there there's like a quicker pace now. We started at a period when like there was right. not as much happening. So like <laughs> now it's harder to spend time on coffee. I, I, I assume that it's very popular among sort of political journalists because I think we drink the most coffee of any anyone it in is. the world. And, so. and like I, I started off sort of on the nexus of politics and coffee just because that's kind of where I'm naturally covering things. So right, Michael right. Dukakis was my first like I do this thing my yeah. morning cup about like what their habits are. And like you can find that figure out like who people I, are through their coffee. So Dukakis gets his coffee at Costco. And he works it out to like three cents a cup, you know. He's so it's so it's that, so like, Dukakis, it's yeah, completely Dukakis. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, so what? What is Mitt Romney? Uh, I, I he believe doesn't, he's Mormon, right, 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 right. I did try and see if he drinks decaf, if he drinks any or anything, kind of, and, uh, no. uh, you know. Do any of the, the sources sons? close to Romney say so, that he so, does not? What are any of the sons? Just tag? No, no. no. They, uh, Diet Coke is. Well, there's like a thing, right? I mean, the 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 rule is you can have cold caffeinated beverages, but not hot ones. Well, he, well, he he makes an exception for himself to drink like he, diet he do, cokes. Or... He does drink diet cokes, and then uh, I mean, so in we're getting into the weeds a little <laughs> bit here, so, but okay. But I, are we really just talking about this right now? This, this, <laughs> is, this is there are people hanging on our every word. I promise you. There was I did see, and I went with. This is his last event of as a like potential. 2016 presidential candidate in Mississippi, in Starkville, Mississippi. He went to a barbecue place, uh, mm. and he went to the fountain and filled it up with Diet Coke, and then he he added, like, a little dollop of, of Coke and said, like, you know, he was living on the edge. You know, a little, a little extra. <laughs> Regular Coke. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, oh, that's yeah, nice. Yeah. So. Um, well, I could talk about Mitt Romney, of course, as long as anyone wanted, but we should we should go to something actually relevant to what's happening in the news now. And, and I wanted to start quickly with... Uh, Elizabeth Warren, because I know the folks back home in in Boston uh, woke up Sunday to the special Elizabeth Warren issue of, <laughs> of the globe. It seemed like uh, very much. I mean, th- this this thing about Elizabeth Warren should run, which I know that, you know, progressive groups have been, you know, pushing and pushing. She's kind of played some games to keep it alive, I think, you know, even though I don't think that she's, you know, if if Hillary's in, she's made pretty clear, I think, that she's not going to run. So I was a little surprised at, at the Globe. So what do you guys make of it? I was surprised at how how prominent and how the depth of what, what, what they did. I mean, it was not subtle at all. Right. I mean, it took over like the entire front of the ideas, the ideas, and, section, right. the ideas section and had a couple of columns about it. Uh, you know, I, the concept I was not surprised by, but I think, you know, the 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 aggressiveness of the of the pitch, you know, was was kind of striking uh, to me. But I, I, on the other hand, like I do think it, it did what editorials I think are supposed to do. Like it got people talking about it. Right. You know, Fox right. News had the Globe editorial page up talking about what the Boston Globe is saying. You right. know, and I I'm, think for that reason, it was. A, and just as as a Bostonian in exile who doesn't work at the Globe anymore, I have to ask how much of this is Boston losing its voice on the national political scene. Like we don't have Mitt. Yeah, we don't have Carrie, Senator Kerry. Or... Yeah, Duvall didn't go. And yeah. you know, I know that just to jump on it, you know that the the Globe has staffed up with terrific political reporters, including uh, some folks who are really knowledgeable about New Hampshire, yeah. James Pendle, for instance. 
I know that, that the Globe would like to think that they can own New Hampshire, but there's a million publications that are going to try to own New Hampshire now. So I, is that part of it, do you think? Um, I, I think there's a definitely an effort on, on New Hampshire. And it is it is sort of for us staffing up and figuring out how to cover a presidential campaign that we do not have a logical candidate to cover. Um, I think there's still an appetite in Boston just because it's politics and yeah. politics is politics and people people like it up there. So I, th- I But I do feel like the paper will try to capture New Hampshire in, in a way and, and compete aggressive, more aggressively, frankly, than, than in 2012 when we had Romney and New Hampshire was kind of a, a boring primary, honestly. I mean, Romney sort of had it locked up the whole time. So I do feel like New Hampshire this time will be a lot more exciting and you know, hopefully we can we can make a little bit of a mark on the New Hampshire side of things. But it is a, it is, you know, the first time in, in a while that we have not had a logical right. candidate, whether it was Romney or Romney ran twice, Kerry before Kerry, that, yep. you know, and, it, and you've always had somebody. I mean, know. yeah, I mean, I do have to I ask the question. I mean, I have to say from a national perspective, uh, Elizabeth Warren has captured the progressive imagination. So regardless of what Bostonians or the Boston Globe uh, opinion page is trying to do, I think that on a national level, she has a role to play here. And going to your point, David, um, she may or may not be uh, using that role, but she occupies a unique space that has the potential to really impact the presidential campaign, um, even if she doesn't get in it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the other part of the editorial, too, which was, you know, for Democrats, like, really? Like, we're not going to have a contest? Like, you got to have right. some kind of challenge here, <laughs> right, even, right. whether it's Warren or whoever it is. And Warren seems like the the most positioned to give Hillary a, a true run mm-hmm. in a true campaign. But whoever it is, you know, it's it's kind of striking. You, the Republicans, there's, you know— you might not even be able to fit them all on a stage for the debate, whereas right. like, yeah. Democrats, I don't even know if you need to have right. debates, or, you know, like until. Well, that's what Hillary's but, hoping. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah, I get that impression. Um, and we'll get to the Republicans in just uh, just a moment. But uh, no, I just thought it was strange because, it, you know, I, I think that you two would agree that that this is not one of those parochial like times when when people up in Massachusetts have this bizarre imagination that their local that everyone's clamoring for their local the hub you know, of the universe right yeah. uh, this is really a case where she's a really big deal down here right, right? yeah and, you know, very much uh, but that's that's why I would have thought you know the hometown paper would do the sort of hey don't get too big for your britches remember <laughs> you you were sent down there to take care of the people of Massachusetts you know that kind of yeah you know instead of the yeah yeah go run go run yeah, yeah. But, there were also lines in there about, you know, uh, Kerry or Kennedy, you know, other people who right. run and know the state didn't hold it against them. But on the flip side, like the state very much held it against Mitt Romney. Uh, Absolutely. After right. two years of being governor and, you know, and, being a governor is different from being a senator. But there was, you know, he, he there was I, yeah. I don't know if there were editorials about Wasn't there stories about, about how many days yeah. he was out of the state? Oh, there were lots that. of them. I, yeah. I wrote some of them. I, mean, I was, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was as mean as anybody. But and I also don't really fully agree because I think that. There was backlash against both Kerry and Kennedy. It's just that they they were so solidly positioned that they it didn't hurt them in terms of yeah. actually getting reelected. But anyway, do you think Elizabeth Warren is likely to run? Not likely to run. I, I think not likely to run. Uh, you know, she 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 gives no indication that she's doing anything yeah. to prepare to run. You know, and I think 
you know, the, the idea of going up against the Clintons is, is yeah. a tough one, you know, and, and she may be better off. And she could, like Donovan was saying, I like, can use her influence in other ways to keep this flirtation alive as long as she can mm-hmm. do it with a semi-straight face is kind of to her benefit, maybe. Well, not to be contrarian, but and, and for the record, I said she was never run for Senate. <laughs> <laughs> no, really. I mean, I covered yeah. her when she came down here to work at the to set up the CFPB right, and right. all this. And I was with the Globe and that was part of my beat. And I thought I met her and she was very nice Harvard professor, incredibly well educated, had this very. And I thought there's no way she's going into politics. I really didn't think so. And look at what she's done. Yeah. So good for her. But that being said, I think um, she's not likely to run. I mean, the sources that I still have that are close to her say no way. But I also think, what if she does? I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of think if for some reason I can't imagine what if for what some reason be, Hillary for some reason down. Hillary does not, you know, then then I think she would at least have to reconsider it even at this slate stage. But um, but the other thing is, she certainly I, I agree with both of you that she certainly plays a role. Um, I mean, if she was to ever suggest that maybe progressives would be well off looking at uh, Martin O'Malley, for instance, the governor. That would be huge. uh, It would be huge. So you know that Hillary behind the scenes is going to make is going to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. And in turn, Elizabeth's going to ask Hillary to to adopt her policy position. I also wonder of the psychology uh, given, uh, you know, for Warren, you know, everybody, you know, continue to ask her, moveon.org, you know, putting a lot of money, you know, more than a million dollars down, you know, I just don't know over time if there's any sort of change in her psychology, you know, in in ways she'll sort of. So let's switch over to the the Republicans. uh, And we got the first. Which one? (laughs) Which one? Which 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 part of the Republican Party? No, no, no. Which of the twelve or fifteen? Oh, there's uh, uh, well, there's one who finally made it official. I mean, there's a bunch of them who have been running, including Ted Cruz, clearly, or Rafael Cruz, as I as I refer to him. That's that's his actual (laughs) first name. Ted Cruz is it? Our Ted. There you go. Um, But Ted Cruz was the first of the twenty or so who actually did the official launch. The most impressive thing to me was that he managed to find. Uh, sort of a gap time in the news cycle where nothing else was happening, which is pretty impressive in itself. So what was he trying to do with that attention of the launch? I, I mean, yeah, the uh, and, and actually like Ted Cruz has kind of been part of the conversation, but he's not really been at the forefront. So uh, the way that he outlined, uh, you know, his announcement was pretty smart. You know, I mean, the, Rand Paul is expected to announce in, in early April Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, you know, all these people is that's where the conversation has been. So Ted Cruz kind of surprised people in in kind of a smart way to where and got several bites at several different news cycles, the way that he kind of leaked, rolled out little bits and pieces of it. Absolutely. Took care of his hometown paper. You know, the Houston Chronicle broke the story. They had it, you know, in their Sunday paper, got talked about on the Sunday shows. Then like everybody's. I mean, not everybody, but you know, we're all waiting till midnight when he sends out a tweet like it's official that he's running. You know, and then, I thought that was very smart. Yeah, I thought and it was to very... come out. I mean, historically, the first announcers that doesn't necessarily give them an edge in the long run of this thing. But you're right to find a space in the news cycle and to lay it out the way he did and in the place of his choosing. I mean, there was how many reporters there? I don't even know, but. 
But and uh, at Liberty University, I mean, it also had a built-in crowd of students who were required they to were be required there. Required to be so there. So the visuals of the thing were pretty great for if you're Ted Cruz, you know. And like we can all say, you know, yeah, students would. I think there would have been fined ten dollars or something right. if they didn't show up. So it was a baked-in crowd, like ready to. But it was I mean, also I mean, it was also a baked-in thing for for the media to talk about. Oh, Liberty University. Why is he having it there? Yeah. What does that mean? You know. It, it, so that was an additional sort of round of talking points. Well, and I thought it was interesting. I mean, there's a certain, uh, the chattering class, as we call them here in Washington, D.C., tends to write him off a lot as a fringe um, element within our politics and and comparing him even at times to people like Michelle Bachman, uh, even when he was talking about running. But here, he rolled it out in such a way that everybody stood up, turned around and said, oh, wait a minute. This was a really good announcement. He laid out his plan. I mean, whether you agree with the politics or not. Um, and it was not mm-hmm. a Bachmanesque moment. I thought the religious aspect of it was interesting, too. I mean, at Liberty University, an evangelical school, Ted Cruz sort of had the feel of a mega church pastor. You know, he was sort of walking around on a circular stage with the, right. you know, the micro wireless mic coming out of his ear, yep. Yep. you know. Uh, which you know, I, I you know, sort of for people who are watching on TV, got a lot of shots of his back, you know, because right. the right. cameras didn't know quite where to go. But like the 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 theater of it and the, you know the staging of it was was pretty good, uh, and I think an indication of how much of an outreach he's going to do to evangelicals, uh, which would be crucial in Iowa, uh, and you know, it's sort of a good lane for him to right, and it's to actually going to play a bigger role. Um, then, as I said, the people that write him off as a fringe candidate, because when you talk about going to Iowa, there's a lot of the Christian conservatives and um, there's other potential candidates that are trying to compete in that space. I mean, you look at Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be, I mean, there's two or three of them. I can't. Is there a Huckabee? He's <laughs> a former pastor. Uh, Huckabee yeah. out of Arkansas. You've got uh, uh, Bobby Jindal right. who's, who's looking at you. Then you've got sort of the uh, um, uh, Ben Carson who's sort of oh, that's being, right. being looked at as sort of this year's Herman Cain, but very popular, uh, you know, in the sort of Fox News watching crowd, you know. Who, well, so these are they're all going to be competing for each other's votes, right. each other's base. And that could end up helping the more establishment candidates like Jeb Bush um, uh, by splitting the Tea Party base. But it, it also does seem to me that that someone is going to come out of uh, Iowa as as the South's choice, essentially. You know, if if Huckabee or you know, I, I think that what Jeb would like is it for, is for it to be someone who doesn't have sort of party credentials, someone like a Mike Huckabee, uh, um, a Rick Santorum. The last time it was Newt Gingrich. You remember Newt Gingrich sort of survived and ended up winning a bunch of southern states, you know, because they're looking for someone like that to, to vote for. If it's someone like a Ted Cruz or, you know, or someone else who has, you know, reasonable credentials, that gives Jeb Bush a lot to worry about, especially, you know, they're talking about doing some kind of southern primary day you know yeah. it could be a lot of trouble in one swoop yeah and and i i think that's the that's the challenge for for jeb and for i mean to, to the degree maybe scott walker can sort of also potentially straddle those you know different factions of the party in, in a way that jeb is kind of locked up kind of the the more establishment right sort of but know. is there enough money for Cruz? when rick perry's going to be raising a lot of texas money and a lot of the business money is already 
you know, gone to Jeb and so forth. Is there enough money for Ted Cruz to, or does he not need as much money? He says he's going to raise something like $50 million. It's also, I mean, you can imagine in this world of super PACs, the way that, you know, Sheldon Adelson kept Newt Gingrich alive right. with, you know, one stroke of a check, yeah. you know, yeah. a stroke right. of a pen on a checkbook, you know. Sheldon Sh- Adelson he, of uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts. And by the way, Ted Cruz, uh, Harvard, uh, Harvard Law graduate, Harvard right? Law. Yeah. So. Um, which I believe you wrote about yeah, his time at Harvard big, a yeah. while back. Yeah. yeah, we did a long story about that a year ago. Folks can look that up, I'm sure, online. Find that uh, uh, it must have been good because I remember it. So um, <laughs> he hasn't changed. He was the same in law school as he is. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Okay. Um, now I want to turn to a very different topic. Donovan actually actually has been out reporting, and I, I know that a lot of people listening to this will remember when VA hospital stuff was sort of all over the news, all over the news. Um, and then sort of quieted down. So what have you right. been – why don't you tell us what you've been reporting on because uh, in, in USA Today the last week or two. Right. Yeah. I mean everybody – you're right. The the spotlight really turned once the VA secretary, Eric Shinseki, resigned last year and people just kind of moved on with their lives thinking everything was going to get fixed now. Um, but the truth is uh, there's still a lot that needs to be fixed at the VA. And uh, I just stumbled across one – particular aspect of it, and it's the inspector general's office. There is a VA facility in Wisconsin where veterans have been uh, prescribed amazing amounts of opiate prescriptions, Mm. and they are overdosing. Um, They are, some of them, dying. Um, There's a lot of issues with that. And the inspector general, anyway, went in and looked at this issue, did a report last year, but never released it to the public, never gave it to Congress. No one even knew about it. Hmm. And uh, we figured it out, uh, thanks in part to a story by the Center for Investigative Reporting in San Francisco that this report existed. Anyway, so I go after this report, and then I find out and I figure out that this inspector general has actually kept 140 other reports from the public in the last several years. And that means the public doesn't know, Congress doesn't know, there's no follow-up. And since I started reporting the story, they started to try and release some of these reports. And, and there's veteran deaths involved. But this points to some larger issues where some, some more questions need to be asked. Um, there was another veteran, and this case uh, was uh, struck me, in Wichita, Kansas, where a veteran had given a, an advanced directive that if he should ever be in a situation where he needed to be resuscitated, he wanted everything to be done possible to save his life. Mm-hmm. Well, nobody at the VA hospital scanned that into his record. Oh, no. And when it came time, they asked the family, and the family's like, oh, well, I guess we shouldn't resuscitate. So they did not resuscitate him, and he died despite his advanced directive because they didn't scan it into his chart. And and the thing that, that uh, I mean, I guess part of me is not surprised that everything didn't turn around, you know, right away. And also part of me has been skeptical for a long time about inspector generals, you know, in these federal agencies. They sometimes tend to be more sort of the fig leaf for, you know, to protect those, those uh, uh, agencies. But I guess I was surprised in this case because I just thought this was such a high profile thing there should have been some notice that it wasn't being that the results were not being publicly released you right. know it, it, well i think it, it it's counterintuitive because people think of the inspector general as the one who goes in and and 
shows all these issues. I mean, right. the, the same inspector general went into Phoenix last year and came out with a report that said, you know, these these uh, wait time manipulations could have contributed to the death right. of 40 veterans. And that was a, a big deal. And so everybody looks at the inspector general as a hero. Right. And he is. But he should not be, um, you know, members of Congress are... are are rightly asking questions now about his decisions uh, on his own to withhold reports from the public or not. I remember when the VA mm-hmm. stuff happened, we we kept trying to find like a New England, you know, uh, aspect. Right, to it. But uh, right. like the hospitals generally in New, New England, as uh, far as the VA are pretty good, are yeah. pretty good. Yeah. So there was yeah, yeah. And the one report that this uh, inspector general withheld was in uh, Leeds, Massachusetts, and it was completely unfounded allegations. Mm. So it really wasn't yeah. an issue. But is this? I mean. Uh, the idea of of not being able to get information and and like like, like Donovan was was describing of you know finding that that reports just weren't released you know and and as you try to dig into them you don't even know that the reports are there to not be released you know yeah like, exactly I, I, it I, is like I mean I, I guess it gets to the point of like a sprawling bureaucracy that's like far more vast and you know complicated than covering. You know, I mean, I started covering uh, like board of selectmen meetings, you know, and there's like an agenda and a document. You can FOIA for like specific things. But like this is like, you know, different right. from City Hall or the oh, State funny. House. And yeah, a whole level of. Yeah. When I moved down here, Matt was already here working for the Globe. And our bureau chief said to me, oh, Donovan, just treat it like it's the city council in Menino. <laughs> No, nothing is like the city council. <laughs> <laughs> but you quickly learn that, oh, my goodness, this is a huge, vast bureaucracy, like Matt was saying, that is nothing like anything you would find on the state or local level. And once you figure it all out, then you find out that neither the White House nor Congress is subject to FOIA. Right. So you can't, like, back at the state house. Well, it's like the governor. I mean, like, in Massachusetts, I yep. was always frustrated that, like, the governor's office is the same. You know, they, oh, executive privilege. Like, they, you know. You and know. it also seems to me that that, 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 that people don't, don't realize how good bureaucrats and, and sort of the Washington elites are at playing the game against the press. You know, the press is better down here. You know, there's more of them that, you know, you guys are both terrific, but... They're good at it. They're good at blocking efforts. Oh, yeah. they, they, you know, they're just really good and, at not answering questions. And they have a, a whole lot of mechanisms to go around the press right. now. I mean, the the White House has you know myriad ways to get their message across without with the media at all. You know, so it's it's I don't know. It's, it's but an getting documents to, is a real challenge, and yeah. and even the executive agencies, whether it's the VA or. Um, the IRS that are subject to the Pup Freedom of Information Act uh, laws, it can take a year, two years, three years. And by the time you get the documents, it might be the next administration. Uh, right. All right. Before uh, we wrap up, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, a former senator from uh, from Massachusetts, John Kerry, who I imagine both of you have had dealings with uh, a number of times over the years. Um, a very earnest guy. You could You could sort of Imagine him, you know, leaving the the Senate for uh, for this position, of Secretary of State, really believing, you know, uh, I'm going to be able to do great things. You know, maybe get away from some of the frustration of of the Senate, where he had to deal with these bozos who wouldn't even pass his climate change bill, and you know, very frustrating to him. And 
now he's had frustrations of his own <laughs> as he's trying to you know negotiate the Iran. With bozos that, who speak different languages. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> is that a direct quote? I don't know. Yeah. If that's um, yeah. <laughs> so, what what, do you, what do you, you know with 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 what he's trying to do in Iran and and uh, and obviously with the Israel elections that have been in, in the news. Where do you think John Kerry is in terms of his legacy at the moment? It's kind of it's almost where it was after a year. You know, I mean, it's the same place, which is that. It's admirable. Everybody talks about how admirable his energy is and how, you know, Hillary Clinton was kind of risk averse in that job because she had like another act, you know, in running for president. Whereas Kerry, you know, his political career is probably done. And so he he's being more risky than she was in trying to set things up for potential success. We're still, though, in that like potential success phase, you know. Well, I mean, do you. When he came in, and this is my understanding, wasn't one of the big things he really wanted to get to was Israeli-Palestinian peace. Yeah. And this was something that the White House, Obama, um, had kind of just said, okay, this is not going to be doable in my administration. But then, of course, he appointed Secretary Kerry, and and this is what he wanted to do. And they spent a lot of time and energy trying to do that. Um, And I'm not sure that's gotten anywhere. Didn't it blow up at some point? Yeah, and there's no – there's like – Probably no chance now, given the you right, know, right, the the current the state of things, of the re-election Netanyahu. of Netanyahu, and the relationship with that he has with Obama. I think Kerry's relationship with Netanyahu is a lot better, but you know, Kerry can only sort of do so much at this point. And Kerry seems to have kind of moved on past that. Right, you know, now the Iranian deal, now it's which the Iranian is deal which... coming up in another week or so. Which right, could be, but looks like it might also, it could also fall fail. apart. Yeah, right. Um, and 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 meanwhile, there aren't a lot of. Big successes. I mean, I I sort of have a I guess more of a real real politic. You know, like as long as things aren't getting worse, that's a that's a, a win. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's the case in a lot of places that that they don't get that the administration doesn't get credit for. Well, but I in mean, terms I gotta, of, I got to disagree with you on that. Yeah. Look at Tunisia. Yeah. Look at Yemen. Certainly. Uh, the Islamic so, State. How can you say things are not getting worse? Right. Uh, no. No. I, I think that's fair, and I think that certainly the Ukraine and relationship with uh, with Putin and Russia have gotten worse. And no, I think that's true. He doesn't have big wins to point to. So uh, that your point about the next act, I assume that that John Kerry, while his political career is over, I think he sees himself as having yet another act, whether it's, you know, yeah. maybe running, you know, doing sort of a Clinton initiative kind of thing or whatever. I, I don't think that he ever stops serving in that sense. I agree. His, Something his, even like Jimmy Carter with the Peace right. uh, yep. Center. His energy level, I mean, people talk about it. I mean, I've, I've done a couple of trips with Kerry and it's, it's amazing. I mean, like I'm 35 years old. I'm exhausted. And like Kerry is like, staying up later and you know doing more and he's got like far much more on his plate and it's and it is amazing and he, he's bike riding when he's yeah. going overseas yeah you know, i don't uh, know he's just doing a lot so but it, like, but but one thing slips on you know like he doesn't get that that uh fire hydrant shoveled out or something like you know that <laughs> he lets yeah. one little thing slip yeah. and that's what everyone cares about yeah um well listen matt uh and donovan thank you both very very much for for joining me thanks for having me thanks david this is fun Matt Visor is a reporter at the Boston Globe's Washington Bureau. Donovan Slack is a USA Today Washington Bureau reporter. If you like what you hear from the Scrum, please subscribe in iTunes. And while you're in iTunes, don't forget to rate and review the Scrum so we can continue to bring you more episodes. 
As always, you can find links to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and past episodes of The Scrum on our website. That's wgbhnews.org slash scrum. By the way, do you two, like, have to constantly, like, upgrade what apps you're using? Like, like now Meerkat is... I just downloaded Meerkat. Yeah, I just yeah, yeah, downloaded that, too. Like, it, you can't I kind of feel up. like, I don't know. I don't know how Meerkat's going to go, but... <laughs> Hillary mentioned it, now it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, the Scrum team includes Peter Kadzis and Adam Riley. Abby Ruzica is our producer. Special thanks to Gary Mott for helping us out with the recording this week and to NPR for hosting me. Thanks very much to the NPR folks here. I'm David Bernstein. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. <laughs> Ha 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 